now. <laughs> I apologize for that. Right. It's the week after. Isaiah chapter 62. The Lord's salvation. I'm told that dogs live in the moment. Um, by which they mean that they don't worry about what's happened to them in the past. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they've been abused, ill-treated, whatever baggage has happened in their past. Get things right now and they will enjoy now and they will live for now. They have no thought for the past, they have no thought for the future, they just live in the moment. Well, that's great for dogs. Christians are not supposed to be like that. We are certainly supposed to live in the moment, we're certainly supposed to engage with the moment, we're supposed to glorify God in everything we do, we're supposed to be uh, out there communicating with society, seeking to win people for Christ, we're supposed to be interested in what's happening in the world and praying concerning that. We're supposed to live in the moment, but we're certainly supposed to remember the past and with gratitude give thanks to God for what he saved us from and what he's delivered us out of. And we're certainly supposed to be forward-looking, forward-thinking, forward-focused people. And as we come to Isaiah 62, we come to one of those descriptions of the church that we find in the Bible that is very much forward-looking. The Bride of Christ. Verses 1 to 5. Just let me read to you verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silence, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness, and her salvation as a burning torch. Zion represents God's people. At that time, it's very much associated with ethnic Israel, the true believers within Israel. But as we've seen, it's going to go out to all the nations. We've already covered that in earlier chapters. The nations are going to be brought in. And so when he's seeing Zion now, when he's talking of Zion, it's the the church of Jesus Christ, the complete gathering of all believers, Old Testament, New Testament, post-New Testament, up until the return of Jesus Christ. And we're told in Scripture that she, the church, is the bride of Christ just read to you where it talks of Christ being joined to his bride Revelation 19 verse 7 let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb that's Christ has come and his bride has made herself ready it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen bright and pure for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints We have this glimpse, John's given this glimpse as he's there in exile on the Isle of Patmos into what it will be like when finally the church triumphant, all of the saints together, are presented to Christ as his bride. And he, the bridegroom, will as it were marry the church, his bride. And what an amazing picture it is. But when we look at the church in our lifetime, when we look at it in this moment, in the now Let's be honest, it looks like anything but the radiant bride of Christ so often, doesn't it? When we look at the church, we're far more likely to see divisions, confusion, a a reluctance to speak of our bridegroom, Christ himself. We see its sin, we see its weaknesses, we see its half-heartedness. Where is this beautiful bride? 
well, look for a moment at how it will be. How it will be when finally we're presented to Christ. I don't know in verse 1 who the I is. The person who's speaking in the first person there, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Theologians differ. Some say it's God the Father. Some say it's Jesus Christ. Some, and I'll cast my vote in with them for what it's worth, uh, suggest it's Isaiah. And I, and I think very possibly it is Isaiah. And what Isaiah is saying is in light of what I'm being shown, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until this comes about. I'm, I'm going to urgently plead for this thing. His heartbeat is like Daniel's. Do you remember when Daniel's there in exile and Daniel from studying the scriptures uh, understands that it's time for this exile to end? Uh, He doesn't sit there saying, okay, it's going to end now, great, you know, let's just sit here every day and look and see when it's going to end. Now what's he doing? He's pleading with God for the end of it. He's coming to God saying, God, I understand from your word, this is going to happen. Please, God, make it happen. And Isaiah seems to have a heart like that. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and as salvation as a burning torch. He's urgent to see the church looking like the bride of Christ. My friend, is that your heartbeat? Do you long to see the church radiant? instead of in the mess that it's so often in. And let's just have a look how the church will be on that day when we're presented to Christ. Here's the first thing, verse 2. She will be righteous. She'll be righteous. She will be pure. The nations shall see your righteousness. The word your and you in verse 2 are feminine singular. It's still talking of the, the bride, Christ, the bride's church, Christ's bride, the church. First thing we're told is that she'll be righteous. Well, she's got righteousness imputed to her without any question. When we become Christians, at that very instant, God the Father makes a legal declaration. I will reckon them, I will consider them, I I will think of them as being righteous. He he clothes us, as it were, the the language of the scripture, he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. So when he looks at us, he sees the beauty of Christ rather than the mess that is us. But on that day, we will actually be righteous. Not only will we have that righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us, but in our glorified minds, our glorified bodies, our glorified hearts, they will actually be righteous. They will not sin. There will be no sin in them. They will be not capable of sin. Isn't that amazing? When you look at the mess that we live our lives in today, even as Christians so often, if we're honest, and, and the way that we let ourselves down and let our Lord down over and over again. My friend, the day is coming when you won't do that. When you will truly be righteous. This is even more amazing though, verse 2. She will have glory. All the kings, your glory. Now let's make no mistake. The new heavens and the new earth are going to be filled with the glory of who? God. I mean, his glory will just fill the cosmos. But do you realise we will be glorious as well? Each and every Christian will have glory of their own. Romans eight eighteen, 
Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 1 Corinthians 15.43 Talking of our bodies, he says, It is sown in dishonour. The body of this lifetime, he says, is dishonour. It is raised in glory. He says the new body, the one that we receive at the resurrection, will be a glorious body. It will have glory. 1 Peter 5.4, speaking of ministers, but it says this, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And Gill comments on that. He says it never fades away, but ever shines in its full luster. And this faithful minister shall receive at the hands of the chief shepherd as a gift of his, as a reward of grace. When they finish their work, they will enter into the joy of their Lord and shine as the stars forever and ever. They shall reign with Christ as kings, lowercase, on a throne of glory, wearing a crown of glory, and enjoying a kingdom and glory to all eternity. Isn't that awesome? We're going to be pure. We're going to have glory. Verse 2, we're going to have a new identity. My friend, if you're a Christian, you already belong to Christ. You're betrothed to Christ, as it were. But then you will marry Christ. And just as the wife has a new identity when she marries her husband, so the church will have a new identity as she marries Christ. Do you delight and look forward to that? When finally the marriage takes place between the church and Christ himself. I I, I remember back to when I got married, and I'm sure every couple could share the same experience. That first time, and it's probably on your honeymoon when you go to sign in the register or something, and the wife goes and usually sort of goes to, and then, hang around a minute, my name's changed. And she signs it for the first time with a new name. And the first time the husband looks at the wife and addresses her as my wife. In that moment, it's changed. The identity has changed. And and likening this to to a marriage, that's what Isaiah's doing here. God says, it's going to be like you've got a whole new identity as you come into that deeper, richer, more intimate relationship with Christ than you've ever been able to enjoy in this lifetime. Verse 3, she'll be beautiful. church isn't very beautiful at the moment is it? I don't mean the buildings I mean Christians are not very beautiful I don't mean what we look like either, I mean what our hearts are like, what our actions are like what our words are like and you, and you look around the church in this world today and, and you, you wonder well I don't to be honest very often but you know sort of people wonder why non-Christians aren't attracted to Christ I think it's largely because they're not attracted to us. They don't see us as beautiful. They don't see us as those that I, I want to be part of them. I want to be with them. I want to, I want to know them better. I want to relate to them more. I want them involved in my life. We're not that beautiful. We should be. But we're not. But verse 3, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem. In the hand of your God. I don't know, are you like me? Absolutely 
frustrated and sick of your sin. Does it, you know, do, do you, when you go to bed at night, it's like, I just, once again, I haven't got it right like I wanted to. Is that where your heart's at? My friend, that is a temporary battle. Then it will be over. You will be a thing of radiant beauty. The church will. And most amazingly of all, verses 4 and 5. Not only will we delight in God, which is what we expect, isn't it? I mean, God is altogether transcendent. I mean, how could we not delight in him as his people? It's not what he's talking about in verses 4 and 5. He is going to delight in us. And that blows my mind. Look at verse 4. You shall be called, he's saying, this is, as it were, the title that I'll give to you. Forget how Israel's been described, you know, now and in the past when they go into exile the, the sort of things people are calling them the sort of way they're describing themselves he says this is how I will call my church my delight is in her is that awesome verse 4 for the Lord delights in you verse 5 as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you do you ever sort of wonder how God puts up with you now do you ever sort of wonder that God doesn't just say I've had enough of you I, I often feel like that you think God why, 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 why do you still love me I just don't begin to understand your love my friends come that day he won't only love us he will delight in us he will say, you're radiant, you're beautiful, you're glorious, you're pure, and my joy and delight is in you. What a prospect. And it will all be of his grace, and it will all last for all eternity. That's our future, folks, if you're a Christian. That's how it's all going to end, but it won't end because it will go on and on forever. Now, how are we supposed to respond in light of that? Well, we're not supposed to do... Oh, God, I've got a double negative here. That's not good grammar, is it? We're supposed to do like Daniel did when he was in exile, like Isaiah, if it's him in verse 1, is doing here, and certainly like the watchmen are doing when we get down to verses 6 and 7. We're supposed to be pleading with God for it. We're not supposed to just sit here and say, well, that's wonderful, that's my future. Um, so I'll get on and live this life and I'll fight the battles of this lifetime and um, know that when this lifetime's over, that's going to happen. We're supposed to be forward-focused, forward-looking, and we're supposed to be pleading with God for that day to come. Go back to verse 1 for a moment. If this is Isaiah speaking, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet. He says, I'm going I'm to voice it. I'm going to get it out there until it happens. This is a man who's got a burning passion for the church to be the beautiful bride of Christ. Is that your great desire? 
Are you that forward-looking that you think, what I really, really want is Jesus Christ to come again today and so that this world's finished with, so that my sin is behind me and that I can be this beautiful, awesome, amazing being that I will be by God's grace, whereby I can enjoy God and God will enjoy me and I can worship him and delight in him every moment of all of eternity, bringing glory to him. Well, if not, why not? Can I suggest to you, as C.S. Lewis famously did, that we're just far too easily pleased? C.S. Lewis wrote this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And he's not particularly talking there about our longing for Christ's return, but just how we focus on things of the Lord and embrace things of the Lord and and enjoy God in this lifetime. But my friends, even more when it comes to the return of Christ. I suggest to you that if we're perfectly honest, we're really quite happy with who we are, And we're quite content with what we've got, by and large. And and that's the tragedy of the Western church. We've got so much. We're so comfortable. We've got it so easy. We haven't got persecution. We haven't got poverty. We haven't got crippling diseases. And so we're quite content to spend another 40, 50, 60, 80 years here. And God says, it shouldn't be like that. Can't you see what I'm saying to you? One day you're going to be like this. That should be your longing, to be there and be part of that. Verses 6 and 7. Look, I've put watchmen on the walls to keep vigilant lookout for this event. I've given the command that they're to be constantly crying out to the Lord... All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. Now what's the purpose of them doing this? Calling out all day long, night and and day. Verse 7. You who put the Lord in remembrance take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and make it a praise in the earth. He says, look, it's as I'm, I'm posting people up on the walls. to to look forward for this event and and their task is to constantly cry out day and night to God to, to, to badger him, to pester him to keep it in his face as it were until he does it do you remember how Jesus told his disciples to pray he was teaching them the point that they must persevere in prayer they mustn't give up and he told them a parable it's in Luke chapter 18 Um, And it reads like this, Luke 18, verse 1. And he, that is Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? 
I tell you, he will give them justice. He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus says to them, let me tell you a story. He says, imagine the situation. There's a judge, and it's in his power to give this woman what she wants. She wants justice, and the judge has got the power to do it. But he's a totally corrupt guy. He couldn't care less about this woman. But he says, but she keeps on in his face, day in, day out. She's there first thing in the morning, banging on his door. She's there when he's trying to go to bed at night, still banging on his door, saying, I want justice. Give me justice. Until in the end, he says, this judge not for any other reason than he's sick to death of a pester in him, says, oh, for goodness sake, let me sort this case out because I want to get rid of her. And he says, now, if even a corrupt official will respond to somebody's cry because of their constant thing, how much more do you think God the Father is going to respond to the children he loves if they come to him constantly in prayer like that? And, and the context is for the Lord's return. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We're supposed to plead with God. Now, I want to suggest to you that we do, as Christians. I think every Christian pleads with God. On selected occasions, for selected things. And they tend to be the things that are about me, if we're honest, by and large, aren't they? Me or those I love, or those in the church who I love. You know, if, if I suddenly think I've found a lump and they're saying, oh, I need to go and have a biopsy on it and it might be cancerous, we plead with God. If we're going in for a major operation, we plead with God. If someone we love is in intensive care in hospital, we plead with God. If we're redundant and our money's running out and we're desperately trying to find another job and there's nothing seems to be opening up, we plead with God. It's very much about me, if we're honest, isn't it? God says we're supposed to be pleading like that for the return of Jesus Christ. Day and night, he says. We're never supposed to stop for that final moment when the church is presented to him as his glorious bride. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So finally, we need to live in expectation of it happening, don't we? You know, if we're going to plead with God for something, there's not much point in pleading for it if we don't believe God's going to do it. When Daniel came to God and pleaded for their deliverance out of exile, he did it on the basis that God has promised he'll do it and therefore he was confident it was going to happen. Isaiah says here he's going to put watchmen on the tower and they're going to plead for it and they're going to be confident about it because God said it's going to happen. And we're 2,000 years nearer the event. And Sorry, more than that. We're nearly 3,000 years nearer the event. My friend, we're supposed to do it and live in expectation that Jesus Christ is coming again. Verses 10 to 12. Verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, here it is, this is what God has proclaimed, this is the edict that he sent forth, this is his word that cannot be returned void. 
Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Christ is coming again and his reward is with him. Is that awesome? When General MacArthur, uh, Gerald, when General MacArthur left the Philippines, uh, when they were forced to uh, evacuate out of the Philippines, he famously said, I shall return. Uh, what he a- actually said was, I shall return. Nothing is more certain than the ultimate reconquest and liberation from the enemy of those and adjacent lands. And when he said that, he was really speaking outside of anything that he had any control over. He was actually basing it on a faith very much, because certainly it's not within his power to ensure that he came back again. But Jesus Christ said this, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And when Jesus Christ said that, he was talking of something that's absolutely under his control, over which he is totally sovereign, and which he guarantees he will do. So in the last couple of minutes, can I just ask two, three questions? How would my life reflect the fact that I'm really pleading for Christ's return and living in the expectation of Christ's return. What, what would characterize me if, if that's where I'm at in my life? Well, here's the first thing I suggest. I would have a passion for Christ's likeness now. If, if my great goal is that day when I actually am like Christ, when I'm this beautiful, radiant, pure thing, being... I will strive to be as close to that now as I can, wouldn't I? Isn't that only sensible? If that's my heartbeat, if that's my longing, so I I would be passionate about holiness. I would be passionate about what I watch, what I read, how I speak, how I think, how I act, that I might be as like Christ now as I possibly can in anticipation of the fact that Christ is coming again. And his question was, will I find faithfulness on earth when I come? Here's the second thing. I'd have a passion to share the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I suggest that's about the hardest thing we're called to do as Christians in this lifetime, isn't it? Well, that or holiness or the two together. But to actually talk about Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a simple question. Have you ever met someone who's engaged who never talks about their fiancé? Have you ever come across someone and you said to them, well, what, 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 what's happening in your life at the moment? And they've talked about the weather and all sorts of things and they haven't told you that they've got engaged and that they're going to get married I, I guarantee to you, on the, uh, it's the complete opposite, isn't it? They don't stop talking about it until you get fed up with hearing it. All about how wonderful their husband-to-be is and uh, you know, what all his great qualities are and what he's doing. And We're the bride of Christ. He's our husband. And our wedding day is set. And we're engaged to him. And we're supposed to be out there talking about him. We're supposed to, we, if we love him, if that's what we're longing for, if that's our heartbeat, how does that not come out when we're outside? We'd have a passion for holiness. We'd have a passion to share the gospel. 
And thirdly, we'd have a constant focus on praying, meditating upon, and anticipating the day of Christ's return. Talking before we started about uh, some of these wonderful new housing developments that are happening around Iceland, and uh, you know where they're sticking houses and how annoying it is when they decide to stick one out the front or out the back of your house, you know, and suddenly your whole view is going to change and uh, all the roads will get blocked up and everything else. And then someone made the comment absolutely rightly, it doesn't really matter, we're only here temporarily. You know? This is not our home. We're aliens, we're strangers, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims, to use the language of Scripture. We've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. You read Hebrews 11 when you get home. And just see how all these people who were living by faith, they were not given what they were promised, but only saw it and welcomed it from afar. It says they were looking forward to a building whose architect and and builder is God. They were longing for the day when Christ returns and finally the new heavens and new earth come into being. And the church will be this radiant bride of Christ. My friend, if we measure it against those three criteria, we can each examine our own hearts. How important is holiness to me? How important is it that I think and act and speak like Christ did? Like the Bible says I should. How important is that to me? Number two, how important is it to me? However hard I find it, however difficult, and that's partly down to our personalities and our gifts and everything else, but how important is it to you to want to share about Jesus Christ with people who don't know him? And how much do you find yourself thinking about, meditating on, looking forward to the day when this is all over and God has said, enough and just melts it all down and creates this new heaven and new earth in which dwells righteousness where we will be by his grace if we're in Christ and we will spend eternity glorifying God and enjoying God both in ways that we've never imagined I'd say in our wildest dreams at the moment beyond anything we can comprehend And knowing that God is actually delighting finally in us. Not just loving us, but actually delighting in what we're doing and how we're behaving and how we're thinking and how we're glorifying him. 